This morning, we're continuing to meditate on God's restoration from studying the book of Ezra. Old cars that are left in the field that are full of rust can be restored to look like new. Ancients, very old paintings that have faded can be restored to have brilliant colors and beauty again. And old, crumbling, breaking down buildings can also be restored to be made new once again. If you look around our world, we see that our world is crumbling and falling apart. Sin has ruined and corrupted this world that God originally made to be good. It's because of sin that things like sickness exist. Because of sin that corruption and divorce and even death are a part of our world. Those are not part of God's original design. Sin is the reason why many people live with no lasting joy. They have no joy because they're very far from the God who made them for himself. But we praise our God and Father. We praise his Son, Jesus, and we praise the Spirit because God sent the Son to come to die on the cross in our place. And through his resurrection, Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan himself. He endured our guilt and our shame on the cross, and he rose again powerfully, and he's victorious, and he gives us the victory. He gives us the restoration that we're desperate for. It's all accomplished through our Savior Christ. And through the cross, God is making all things new. God is restoring men and women and boys and girls Restoring us to our original design to be a display of His glory. And all of us in the room that have already repented and are trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, those of us that are disciples of Jesus right now, we already have a restored relationship with God. And yet, we continue to need more of God's ongoing restoration in our lives through his sanctifying presence that transforms us and leads us to more effectively reflect his glory in daily life. So there's this tension of already but not yet, already restored to God but not yet glorified and needing more of his work in our lives. And all of these truths of God's restoration were being foreshadowed 2,500 years ago, when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they completely demolished the temple where it was left in ruins, and the city walls were torn down. The city was burned and just totally decimated. Any survivors were taken to modern-day Iraq to live as exiles in Babylon. But some years later, the king of Persia, Cyrus, allowed Israelites, 42,000 of them, to return to the promised land, to go back to Judah, to rebuild, to experience restoration. God is faithful. 
He is so good to us. We who are so undeserving, and yet God just lavishes and he pours down his grace and his mercy to restore his people who deserved judgment, and yet he promises restoration, and then he accomplishes it. God is faithful. And despite the opposition from the enemy and apathy from within, the people of God were successful in rebuilding the temple that happened at 515 B.C. Now, as we continue the story in the book of Ezra, today we're in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is fast-forwarding 57 years. This is in 458 B.C. So a lot of time has passed from Ezra 6 to Ezra 7. It's fast-forwarded almost six decades after the temple was already completed. And so let's begin reading there in Ezra chapter 7. We'll read the first six verses as we begin. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariath, son of Zariah, the son of Ozi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Praise God. I love this chapter because we finally meet Ezra. The book is named after him. Presumably, God used him, inspired by the Spirit, to write the book of Ezra. But the first six chapters, you don't actually meet Ezra. And then here in chapter 7, he finally comes on the scene. Ezra was likely some sort of an emissary or an official in the Persian government. Verse 6 says that the king of Persia, the world superpower, all right, the Persian Empire, says the king granted him all that he asked. You think anyone could do that? No way. God gave this man tremendous influence. And you see this repeatedly. It is astounding. If you look at the history, you have Joseph, who's given influence in Egypt, which then saves the people of God and preserves the Messiah. So you have influence there. And then you have in this same era, Queen Esther, who God brings up to then save the people of God so that the Messiah would come. You have later, we'll see Nehemiah in a few weeks. God used him with great influence to rebuild the city walls. You, You have it here with Ezra, a man that had great influence. And so God used him. It's just, it blows my mind when you see how amazing God is. It says the good hand of God was upon him. That's a key phrase that six times is repeated in chapter 7 and 8 in this section. God's good hand is upon his people. And he is using his people and he gives them positions of influence in the world so that his divine purposes are accomplished. And so Ezra had this God-given position to make requests of the king, 
close enough that the, chin, that the king trusted him, the king listened to him, and he even gave him responsibilities to do. So we don't know Ezra's exact role, but he seems that he was some sort of a political appointee. Maybe we call him a diplomat if you're using modern-day language. But most importantly, what Ezra had was a passion for the Word of God. It says that he was a priest who was, who was skilled in the Word. He was quick with it. He didn't fumble through it. He, he was competent. He knew the Bible. And he was passionate about the Word of God. He knew God through His Word. And his lineage that we just read here presents him as a new Moses. That's who Ezra is. He's a new Moses who has come to lead the people to know their God by knowing his word. And so just like Moses brought the word to the people, here is Ezra once again with this new exodus of leaving Babylon, going to the promised land, a new Moses that is delivering the word for his people so that they can know their God. And so the temple had already been restored for, again, 57 years. But the people, their hearts were still far from God. And they were in dire need of God's restoration. And it says again in verse 6, And the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Let's keep reading, verses 7 through 10. And there went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up to Babylonia, up from Babylonia. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the God, the good hand of his God was on him. There it is again. The good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So what you see here is Ezra is leaving Babylonia. So he's leaving where he's lived his whole life in exile. And he is taking a group of exiles back to Jerusalem. So we can assume that what he had requested of the king was to take another group back. And the king said yes. He granted the request said yes, go ahead. Anyone that wants to go with you is able to go back to Jerusalem. And the good hand of God was on him, it says in verse 9. Let me give you the main idea, the, the primary truth from this text that's going to govern all our, our thoughts this morning is that the good hand of God is upon those who seek him in his word. This is what we're seeing today is that the good hand of God is upon those who seek God through his word. The good hand of God on his people. Allow that phrase from God's word to sink in. The good hand of God is upon you. That truth should be like a soothing balm on an open wound. His hand is upon you. God is good. He loves you. 
but he's also in control. He is sovereign. And his hand is this imagery of power and of his divine sovereign work. But it's a good hand. And so we can rest in the good hand of our gracious God who is upon us. And so Ezra 7, 9 through 10 makes this truth so clear. The good hand of his God was on him. It says, verse 10, for Ezra had. This is important. Don't miss this. It says God's good hand was upon him. The blessings of God were upon him because of something. For Ezra had done something. What had he done? It says for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. See, the reason why Ezra received these blessings, so the reason why he had the hand of God upon him is because he had determined, decided, he had committed his life to focus on the Word of God. Now, it's very important right here to make a distinction because I already lost some of you, I guarantee it. Let's make an important distinction here. Salvation has always been and always will be an act of God's grace. None of us deserve our salvation. We can't earn it. We can't do enough good to deserve or earn the favor of God. Salvation is a gift of God and is received by our faith in Christ alone. The good hand of God, this blessing for his people is describing grace that God gives to his people after they already belong to him. Here's the key. This is grace that his people receive when they're already his people, after they have already repented and trusted in God alone for their salvation. So this good hand of God is not grace as in salvation. It is a different kind of grace. It is a sustaining grace. It is a sanctifying grace that empowers us to bear good fruit for God. And so when you have repented and you trust in Jesus to save you, that's grace. And then God empowers you and he helps you and sustains you and heals you and sanctifies you. That's still more of God's grace. But the grace of sanctification is received when we focus on his word. So the spirit of God transforms us when We submit to him. So as a believer, as a follower of Jesus here today, if you are not seeking God in his word, hear me, if you, as a believer, if you're not seeking God in his word, then you will not experience the good hand of God. You will not experience the restoration of God. You will not experience the presence of God. Of God. You will not experience the sanctification of God. You'll miss out. You're not going to grow the way God wants you to. Like I teach my children, they know this phrase so well, and now my little ones are learning it too. If you obey, it will go well with you. And when they don't obey, I make sure it doesn't go well for them. When you obey, and you obey God, it goes well for you. And so we experience this blessing of God's presence and sanctification. 
So let's look at two key questions from Ezra 7 and 8 so we can better understand and apply this to our lives today. Key question number one, it's on the screen. How do you seek God in his word? So how do we do that? So, we, so we're seeing here that Ezra was seeking God in his word, and, and that led to God's good hand of blessing on his life. And so how do you do that? How do you, how do you seek God in his word? Three ways. Number one, study the word. That's how you do it. You study the word. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And so if you want to seek God in his word, you have to study it. You have to actually pick it up and read it. You have to do that. You have to choose out of your own free will. Yes, God is sovereign. He's going to sustain you. But you have to also do your effort. Now, grace-empowered effort, of course, but effort nonetheless to pick it up and read it and study it. The only way that we as believers are going to be healthy and we as a church, because that's what we want, isn't it? We want to be a healthy church. And the only way that we're going to be individually and collectively healthy is that we increasingly reflect the character of God as revealed in the Word. God has always worked through His Word. Always. It was through God's word that he created the world. It's through God's word, through the preaching of Ezekiel, that dry bones came to life. So God creates his people through the word. Jesus is the living word that accomplishes the redemption of God. And so creation and redemption are accomplished through the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The word creates the people of God. The people do not create the word. Don't be deceived. People say, oh, people chose what's in the Bible. Wrong. No. The people don't create God's word. The word creates the people of God. So God speaks, and lives are transformed, and his glory is displayed, and it's all about his word. And really, the heart of worship, what we want in our worship gatherings is to just have God revealed. May, may you see him and experience God as he's revealed in song and revealed as we read his word and revealed as we pray his word and revealed as we preach his word. And so we want you to see God and what is worship. When you respond to that revelation, that's a heart of worship, is responding to the revelation of God in his word. Is your life focused on the word of God? Are you like Ezra, who has committed his life to study the word? Do you spend time where you're experiencing the presence and the joy of God as, as you read his word and you spend time really thinking about it and applying it and, and, and praying to God. Is that, does your life have that? If your life doesn't have that, then you're not going to experience the good hand of God. You are not going to experience the restoration that he has 
for you. Restoration is accomplished through the Word. Knowing the Word is how you know God. And that's the goal, is to know God, to enjoy Him, and we do that through His Word. So number two, how do we see God in His Word? Number two, do the Word. And so study the Word. Number two, do the Word. It says it in verse 10 again. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. He didn't just study it. He also did it. He's doing the word. You know the, the essential difference between someone who is a believer and someone who is not a believer? Because there's basically just only two kinds of people in this world. There's kind of a third one, but it's really just two. It's those who know Jesus, believers, and those who don't know Jesus. There's kind of a third subset, people that claim to know Jesus but are just faking it. They're pretenders. They don't actually know him, but they claim to and have this religion. But there's only two kinds, those who are believers and unbelievers. And you know the, the difference essentially between them? A believer hears the word of God and obeys it. That's it. A believer hears God's word and obeys it. An unbeliever doesn't hear it, doesn't do it, isn't interested. So that's what God's word does. It changes us so that we're hungry for it and we want to hear it and we want to obey it. Knowing God through his word leads to obedience. So the key to living a life of obedience is to capture a grander vision of how big God really is. We need a big vision of God, not a small one. But our problem is that we oftentimes tend to think of God as basically being a human. We think of God kind of like being like us. Now, maybe with enhanced abilities from us, yeah, he's basically a person, but he has, he has greater powers. And so sometimes we subtly think of God as though he's some sort of a comic book superhero. Superheroes that are basically human, but they're just enhanced. Jesus is not an Avenger. He's not. He's not like Steve Rogers, Captain America, that's just been enhanced. An enhanced human. That is not who Jesus is. He is holy. We, we can't think of God as basically being an enhanced human. That robs God of his glory and is holy. God is nothing like us. He's totally other. He stands alone. God is holy. He is the fountain of wisdom. He is the author of life. He's all-powerful. His, his eternal perfections are just glorious. He's magnificent. And so we have to have a much bigger vision of who God is. And the more that we're gripped by God's absolute holiness and how big He is and separate from us and this creation, the more that we'll begin to realize what it means to be holy, for I am holy. Being humbled by a holy God, being in awe of His majesty, will drop us 
to our knees. And we'll bow down before His majesty with joyful obedience. If we have a small vision of God, we're not experiencing a transformation or restoration. Are you struggling today with your obedience to God's Word? As Ezra studied it and he did it, are you struggling with your obedience? If you are, the problem is not that your temptation is too big. That's not the problem. The problem is that your God is too small. We need a big vision of a holy God, and we focus on Him as we read and study and then do His Word. And so focusing on Christ through His Word every day will lead us to greater obedience. So how do we seek God in His Word? Well, first of all, we study it. Then we ask God to help us to do it as we focus on His holiness. And number three, we teach the Word. Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So if you are a believer, you are called to teach the Word. You think, no, that's your job. That's what we pay you so that, so that you can teach. No, wrong, that's not true. We have home group leaders. Yes, they're, they're guiding conversations, not teaching per se, but they're opening up the Word. It's still teaching. We have many discipleship groups in our church of men and women, groups of three, sometimes four at most, that get together. And guess what they're doing? They're all teaching each other, discipling each other. Everyone comes to a discipleship group ready to share how God has spoken to them that week, to be transparent, to experience God's transformation, all teaching each other. What about in our children's ministry? Yes, today it's taking a break. But we have teachers in this room that teach children every week. And if you want practice in teaching the word, talk to Cindy Ike, our deacon for children's ministries. She leads the ministry team, and we always need more teachers, especially men. We need men that will teach the little ones so that they can see what a godly man looks like and be an example to them. So you can teach in the kids' area. If you're a parent, you should be teaching the Word to your children at home. Teaching them. Opening up the Word. Reading it with your children every day. Teach your children. If you are a believer, you are called to study the Word, to do the Word, to teach the Word. God accomplishes His redemptive, restorative purposes through His Word. And so God's kingdom is expanded and His glory is revealed when the people of God commit to study the Word, do the Word, and teach the Word. Restoration is accomplished through the Word. Second key question as we keep moving on. So this is, this is what we're called to be, people of the Word. But what is the result? What is the result of seeking God in His Word? Simple. You experience the good hand of God. When we are seeking God in his word, the result, as with Ezra, is experiencing the good hand of God. Ezra 7, 11 through 26, pretty good chunk of chapter 7, is a letter written by the king to Ezra, giving him permission 
to take any other Israelites that wanted to go back to Jerusalem. The king also gave Ezra very large sums of, of gold and silver, of these precious metals, in order to further adorn the temple and to pay for sacrifices. It's amazing how God worked in the king's heart to give his people all this gold and silver. And let's read verses 27 and 28 at the end of chapter 7. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Praise God. Isn't this just amazing text? How we're seeing God accomplishing the miraculous. And that's what I want from our church. I don't just want us to come and experience, okay, I sang and I heard, okay, good. Let's go have lunch and then let's just go home and do it again next week. This is not a ritual. What I want is to see the miraculous. I want to see lives transformed by the, by the work of God's Spirit. Just like here, he's doing something miraculous. He works in the king to give gold and silver to beautify, to adorn the temple of God for God's purposes. And he lets people leave Babylon that had made their lives there and to leave what was known and comfortable to go pursue the unknown of a four-month hard journey to rebuild their lives in, in Jerusalem where they're valuing the glory of God more than their own comforts. Listen, God's going to call you. I don't know to what, but he's going to call you. And he's going to provide the resources for you. He's going to show up because he's miraculous. That's what he does. That isn't the question. God's going to provide. He's going to call his people. The question is, will we respond? Will we trust him enough? to go and do whatever he calls us to do? Will we treasure him enough to die to ourselves and see more glory in his kingdom than in our own comforts? Praise be to God who gives us his good hand to sustain and restore us. Ezra chapter 8, the first 14 verses, it's beautiful, it describes all the people that chose to leave Babylonia and to follow Ezra back to Jerusalem. And God is faithful here, again, calling more people, restoring more lives, just like he's doing today. And then get to, to, to verse 15 and 16 in chapter 8, and you see how before making this very dangerous four-month journey to Jerusalem, Ezra stops to to take inventory, to review and to see, well, who is here? Who is in our group? And when he's looking at who's in the group for three days, he notices something. And it's very troubling to Ezra. He sees no Levites in the group. There's no Levites to join them going to Jerusalem. Now, that was a major problem for Ezra. Remember, Ezra is a priest who is skilled in the word, a descendant of the high priest himself, 
Aaron, the brother of Moses, and, and the Levites, descendants of Moses and Aaron, the Levites were responsible to serve in the temple. They're the ministers in the temple. And not only that, but they're to teach the word to God's people. And so God was calling Ezra to study, do, and teach God's word, but he couldn't do it all. He needed more men that would answer the call to help to teach God's people to see more lives restored for God's glory. He needed more servants, but zero Levites chose to follow. Now, we don't know why exactly, why they failed to answer this call and to join the group that was going back to Jerusalem. Maybe they knew we have it good here in Babylon. We're, we're used to it. We have our lives here. Going to Jerusalem to work in the temple to teach God's people, that sounds quite a bit harder. And so I'll just stay right here in Babylonia. I don't know exactly. The text doesn't say why they didn't join. But this much I can tell you. This we do know. They forgot their identity. They forgot who they were. They didn't want the life that God was calling them to. They didn't want to go to Jerusalem and serve in the temple. They wanted a different life. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever struggle with wanting a different life than what God's given to you? Are you having a hard time living the life that God has graciously given to you. Whatever your life looks like with all of its challenges and all of us have them, are you having a hard time with your identity because you realize in the life that God has called you to and what you're supposed to do doesn't really match up with what you want to do or how you want your life to look and you're like the Levites that are saying, no, thank you, I'm not going. I don't really want to answer that call. We have to remember our identity. Remember who you are fundamentally. You belong to Jesus. You are forgiven and redeemed. You are an emissary of the king. You belong to him and you exist for his glory. That should define us and propel us to do whatever he's called us to do and to have joy and content me with the life that he's given to us as we serve for the king who graciously loves us and saves us. So what does Ezra do? He sends a delegation. He sends a group of men to call more Levites. And we see that in verse 17 and 20. He sends these men, he says, and he sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place of Kasiphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasiphia, namely to send, here, to what? To send us ministers for the house of our God. Need Levites, need, need ministers. Verse 18. And by the good hand of our God, there it is again, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, the son and kinsman, also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, 
and his kinsmen and their son, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Praise God. His good hand is on them, and the Levites hear the need, and this time, because God's good hand is upon them, they respond, and they follow, and they say, we'll go to Jerusalem. We will go serve God, and, and they fulfilled their purpose, their identity. God's good hand was on them. Let's keep reading as our time is expiring. Verses 21 through 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. They humbled themselves. They trusted God, and God's good hand as they sought him was there. And this is a long and very dangerous journey. Remember, they're, they're carrying large sums of gold and silver. Very dangerous journey. And they say no to the king's provision, and they're trusting God, and they get there safely. And the rest of the chapter, through the end of chapter 8 describes how the precious metals were safely delivered to the temple. And God is faithful to his people. Let's do one last verse and close up. Verse 31 in this section. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes by the way. The good hand of God was upon them. So what is a result of truly seeking God in his word? You will experience the good hand of God in your life. You have to know and believe this. Hear me, you have to really know and believe this. It will change everything in your life. You think, yeah, but, but I'm really struggling. And, and what if you're struggling with sinful desires? Or if you're struggling with fear, just great uncertainty or insecurity? How do you, how do you cope with so much uncertainty living in Abu Dhabi? You believe with all your heart. You truly believe that seeking God in his word will allow you to experience the good hand of God's deliverance. You keep believing God. You believe Him. You keep reading His Word. You keep praying like you never prayed before. You keep focusing on Jesus. You keep looking to Him to sustain you, for, to give you meaning and joy. You keep seeking God and His Word. Until when? Until the strongholds break. And then you feel God's love and mercy and healing just flood in to your life. Don't you dare give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. You fight the good fight. You keep looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, trusting him for the restoration that we're desperate for. 
The good hand of God is upon those who seek Him in His Word. God is at work in the world. He's at work restoring this broken world. And guess what? He's already begun. He's already started. Look around the room. You see the evidence of God's restoration right here with those who are gathered together in his name. Until Messiah returns and makes all things new and completes the restoration, we have a mission in the face of all of the uncertainty, a mission to be a light to the nations. May we be found to be faithful to our God and his word. Will you pray with me? Father, we are truly overwhelmed that you would be so gracious to create us, to redeem us, to give us your spirit who is actively restoring us. I pray that you would help us to be truly focused on your word so that we can then become the men and women and boys and girls that you're calling us to be. We so need you. Sustain us. Help us to be active for your glory. And we pray in the name of our love and our King Jesus. Amen.